Chapter 18 of Clinical Medicine for Nurses by Paul H. Ringer, A.B.M.D. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter 18 Lobar Pneumonia. Definition Quote, An infectious disease characterized by inflammation of the lungs toxemia of varying intensity, and a fever that terminates abruptly by crisis. Unquote. Osler. Etiology. The causative factor in lobar pneumonia is the pneumococcus of Frankel and Weisselbaum, which was discovered in 1884. Contributory causative factors. 1. Geographical. Pneumonia occurs in all climates, but is less frequent in the Arctic and Antarctic regions, and near the equator, and most frequent in the temperate zones. 2. Season. The winter and spring months show the largest number of cases of pneumonia. 3. Cold. Not in itself enough to cause pneumonia. For instance, there were but few cases of pneumonia recorded during the celebrated retreat of the French army from Moscow in the dead of winter in 1812. Cold associated with getting wet is a very potent factor in bringing about the disease. Immersion in water, getting wet and chilled, and being unable to change one's clothes promptly often determines the onset of pneumonia. 4. Injury to the chest such as a blow or a kick, is unquestionably a factor at times in the causation of pneumonia. 5. Inhalation. Especially of ether and after tracheotomy, as when the defensive mechanism of the upper air passages is done away with. 6. Alcoholism. A powerful factor in reducing bodily resistance and predisposing to the disease. Alcoholism, wet, and exposure to cold, so often found in combination, furnish a fertile ground for the development of pneumonia. 7. Age. While occurring at all times of life, individuals between 20 and 30 are most prone to the disease. Thus, among 32,681 cases, 8,041, or 24.6%, occurred in the third decade. Males are more frequently affected than are females in the proportion of 6 to 4. Pathology There are four stages in the pathology of lobar pneumonia. 1. Engorgement 2. Red hepatization 3. Gray hepatization. 4. Resolution. 1. Engorgement. The pulmonary capillaries are markedly congested, and some red blood cells appear in the air spaces of the lung. 2. Red hepatization. The affected lobe is in the process of consolidation or solidification. The air spaces are more or less filled with an exudate composed of red blood cells, fibrin, and some white blood cells. The lung is much firmer than normal, is swollen, and pits on pressure. 3. 
gray hepatization. The affected lobe is solid. If a piece of it be put in water, it at once sinks, showing that it contains no air. The lung capillaries are obliterated, and the exudate is most abundant, being composed of some red blood cells, but chiefly of white blood cells, fibrinous threads, and bits of detritus. The lobe pits deeply on pressure, and is more or less of the consistency of liver. 4. Resolution. This is the beginning of the stage of repair. The fibrin threads break up. The white blood cells show fatty degeneration. The lobe loses its solid feel and becomes more soft and boggy. The capillaries again become visible, and gradually the entire exudate is completely absorbed, leaving the lobe in its former normal condition. Symptoms A short description of a typical attack of lobar pneumonia will first be given, and then the various symptoms will be taken up more in detail. Typical attack. An individual in apparently perfect health is suddenly seized with a hard, shaking chill, coupled with a sharp, intense pain in the side, and high fever, ranging from 103 degrees to 105 degrees. The face is flushed, the eyes bright, the expression anxious, the pulse full and bounding, the respirations rapid and shallow. There is cough, dry and hacking at first, later deeper and looser. The fever ranges between 102 degrees and 105 degrees, with slight morning remissions, until it terminates by crisis. That is to say, the fever drops several degrees within a few hours, and leaves the patient relatively comfortable. Herpes frequently appears on the lips. There may be cyanosis, and delirium is common at the height of the disease, which lasts on an average about a week. Convalescence is usually fairly rapid in those that recover, but the mortality is high. Symptoms in detail. Onset. There are two types of onset. 1. Sudden, described in the preceding paragraph. This is the more common mode in patients with good resisting powers. 2. Gradual. This mode of onset often denotes poor resistance. The temperature in this case does not run high. The mental symptoms, especially stupor, are more marked consolidation of the lung is protracted, complications are more to be feared, and mortality is higher. The gradual mode of onset occurs more frequently in individuals past middle life. Pain. Caused by the inflammation of the pleura over the insolved portion of the lung, resulting in a dry pleurisy. The pain is best described as lancinating and is often referred to as a stitch in the side. Sometimes when that portion of the pleura resting on the diaphragm is involved, the pain may be referred to the abdomen, and instances are on record where a diagnosis of appendicitis has been made. The pain is aggravated by talking, deep breathing, 
sneezing, coughing, and any act that causes increased friction between the inflamed layers of the pleural membrane. Fever. This varies greatly. In typical cases, in patients with good resisting power, it usually runs from 103 degrees to 105 degrees at the height of the disease. The crisis is sometimes preceded by a greater elevation of temperature. It occurs most frequently on the fifth, seventh, and ninth days of the disease. The crisis in typical lobar pneumonia is one of the most striking occurrences met with in disease. A patient that has been running a temperature from 103 degrees to 105 degrees that has been cyanotic with labored breathing, with a pulse rate between 120 and 130, perhaps actively delirious and obviously in every way desperately ill, will at the end of from 6 to 18 hours be found with a practically normal temperature, a respiration rate but little above normal, the pulse rate in proportion, all signs of delirium gone, a gentle perspiration taking the place of the raging fever, and the entire picture transformed from one of extreme critical illness to one of relative comfort and comparative safety. Moreover, on physical examination, the lungs will be found to present almost identically the same signs that existed before the crisis. What has happened? It would appear that the general infection has run its course, has finished its work, and having fought to its last gasp, has suddenly, unconditionally, surrendered. Often, indeed, it must be noted, the occurrence of the crisis is marked by very serious symptoms of heart and respiratory failure, necessitating great watchfulness and vigorous stimulation. But if the patient can be safely tided over a few very anxious hours, the outlook is good. The pulse. At first the pulse is full and bounding. Its rate is usually about 120, though it may be somewhat faster. As the disease progresses, the pulse becomes smaller and weaker. Sir James Mackenzie, a great English authority, sums up the question of the pulse in lobar pneumonia so well in a single paragraph that I can do no better than to quote his exact words. He says, quote, In all cases of acute lobar pneumonia that I have met, when the pulse showed even an occasional irregularity before the crisis was reached, death supervened. I have not found a single exception to this rule for over ten years, and while extended experience may prove it fallacious, irregularity of the pulse in pneumonia must, at all events, be looked upon as a most serious symptom. In pneumonia, the amount of arterial tension, the rate of the pulse and its rhythm, are each of them among the most important indications we possess. Within a few hours after a rigor, the fatal termination may be too plainly foretold by the character of the pulse. I have never seen an adult with a pulse rate over 140 recover. Unquote. 
This excellent summary shows how important on indication is the pulse, and how fully the nurse caring for a patient with pneumonia must familiarize herself with the condition of the circulation as expressed in the pulse. The nurse, rather than the doctor, should be the first one to discover any abnormality or change in the pulse. Often and often a life will be saved by her watchfulness, observation, and timely warning. The heart. While the nurse will not examine the hearts of her pneumonia patients, and while the pulse is her index as to the condition of the heart itself, still she should know that the strain in pneumonia is thrown primarily on the heart, and that which is most dreaded is myocardial degeneration, that is, failure and exhaustion of the heart muscle. This weakness may arise from many causes. The three most commonly causing it are 1. Toxemia. The general poison of the disease acts as a distinctly harmful agent upon the muscle fibers forming the heart. 2. Extensive pulmonary consolidation. When two or three lobes of lung are solidified, the heart may have such difficulty in pumping the blood through the relatively small, unconsolidated space that it gives way under the strain. Hyperpyrexia, excessively high temperature. When the temperature reaches extreme heights over 106 degrees, this condition in itself exerts a degenerative effect upon the heart muscle. Respiration. The respiration is rapid, 30 to 50 per minute, short and shallow. There is often an expiratory grunt. The nostrils are seen to dilate markedly with each inspiration. Respiration is voluntarily and involuntarily restricted. Owing to the pain of the associated pleurisy, respiration is shallow, and therefore carbon monoxide, CO2, accumulates in the blood. This exerts a paralyzing effect upon the cells in the brain, where the respiratory center is located, and this paralyzing effect still further hampers respiration. There is often some cyanosis, especially of the lips and fingertips, though in bad cases the entire face may take on a dusky hue. Cough Cough is an almost constant symptom in pneumonia. Jurgensen says, quote, It is rarely useful, always troublesome, sometimes dangerous. Unquote. The cough is at first hard, dry, hacking, and paroxysmal. It is exquisitely painful, owing to pleurisy. Later it becomes looser, and abundant sputum is raised. Sputum. The sputum at first is very characteristic of pneumonia. It is tinged with blood, this tinge giving it a color best described as rusty. It is extremely viscid and tenacious. The cup or glass into which it is expectorated can be turned upside down without the sputum being spilled. I have known the sputum to be so tenacious that it had to be wiped out of the patient's mouth and actually pulled off the tongue. 
As this disease progresses, and especially when the stage of resolution is reached, the sputum becomes less visible, far more abundant, and often of a greenish color. Herpes. This consists in the appearance on the lips and at the angles of the mouth of vesicles which dry up, leaving reddish-brown scabs. Herpes, while most common on the lips, may occur anywhere. Its presence is considered by some to be a favorable sign. Urine. The main feature of the urine in pneumonia is a decrease in the chloride content due to the large amount of chloride contained in the exudate in the lungs. Save for this fact, the urine presents the usual characteristics found in most acute febrile diseases. Bowels. There is usually constipation, though the bowels present nothing characteristic. In bad cases, there may be marked tympanites, which may prove dangerous by exerting upward pressure on the heart. Blood. An increase in the white blood cells is the rule. Leukocytosis. The white blood cells in pneumonia usually number from 15,000 to 50,000, 4,000 to 7,000 being the normal number. Leukocytosis is an important sign from the standpoint of diagnosis and prognosis. Patients with little or no leukocytosis almost always do badly. Duration of disease. Two days to three weeks usually about 10 days. The longer cases must be considered as suspicious. Complications may have set in. Complications. 1. Pleurisy. A. Dry, practically a part of the disease. B. With effusion, develops in about 6% of the cases. 2. Empyema. Occurs in 2% to 5% of the cases. 3. Abscess and gangrene of the lung. These are rare. 4. Endocarditis. A. Simple, fairly common. B. Malignant. 5. Pericarditis. 6. Acute nephritis. Not uncommon. In alcoholic patients, the mental and nervous symptoms predominate. Delirium is violent and protracted, and the mortality is very high. Prognosis, always grave, depends upon the following factors. Course of temperature, pulse, and respiration. Age of the patient, pneumonia being most fatal at extremes of life. Alcoholism, or its absence. Altitude. Pneumonia being more fatal at high altitudes than at low ones. The amount of lung involvement and the occurrence of complications. According to Wells, the mortality in 465,400 cases was 94,826, or 20.4%. Treatment. We have at our command no specific for the treatment of lobar pneumonia. As we cannot, therefore, treat the disease, we must devote all of our efforts 
to treating the patient. The objects of treatment are threefold. 1. To facilitate the body's efforts in its own behalf by means of a. Rest b. Hygiene c. Diet 2. To reinforce nature's proceedings along her own lines 3. To support such organs as show signs of failing. Every physician in treating pneumonia has, in all probability, a method that he prefers to all others. And the nurse will, of course, faithfully carry out his orders to the letter. The following suggestions for treatment are based on broad general principles and, taken collectively, will be used in practically every case. 1. The patient must always be at rest in bed, in the recumbent position, and the use of bedpan and bed urinal insisted upon. 2. Fresh air. A patient with a serious infection and with markedly diminished breathing space obviously requires all the fresh air obtainable. In many hospitals, pneumonia patients are being kept out of doors with very gratifying results, both as regards the comfort of the patient and the percentage of mortality. In private homes, this mode of treatment is seldom practicable. The room should be airy and the windows kept open. This will necessitate added vigilance on the part of the nurse, in order not to allow the patient to become uncovered. Windows and doors should, of course, be closed in cold weather. During the bath, the use of the bedpan, examination, or any procedure involving exposure of the patient. 3. Care of the mouth, tongue, and teeth. Toothpicks with cotton on the end which are soaked in 2% boric acid, are good for cleaning the teeth. A whalebone is an excellent instrument for scraping and cleaning the tongue. And sweet oil, cold cream, cocoa butter, or Vaseline are welcome applications to lips, excoriated and raw from herpes. The condition of the mouth is a very good indication of the general care a patient is getting. The nurse that allows her patient's mouth to get in a foul condition is probably slighting that patient in other directions. 4. Diet The diet should be liquid or semi-solid, small amounts frequently administered. If the patient is able to take semi-solid food, many physicians believe in giving it. The main articles of diet are chosen from the following list milk, oatmeal, rice, hominy, eggs, cup custard, ice cream, broths, gelatin, jellies, and the various substitutes for milk. Sufficient water should be given to slake the thirst. If the patient shows signs of becoming stuporous, it is well to force the amount of water. 5. Bowels. An initial purge with calomel, followed by a saline, is usually given. Later, the bowels are moved by enemata, though some physicians prefer laxatives by mouth. 6. Fever High fever, save when accompanied by delirium or marked signs of toxemia, 
is generally not interfered with. With very high temperatures, 106 degrees or over, cold packs and sponges are resorted to. At the present time, the majority of physicians do not look with favor upon the administration of drugs to reduce the fever of pneumonia patients. 7. Cough When due to pleurisy, heat or cold, mustard, iodine, or strapping with adhesive plaster over the painful area will often help. Strapping has the disadvantage that it interferes with subsequent chest examinations. Often, drugs such as codeine, heroin, or even morphia must be resorted to. The productive cough that brings up sputum is, on the whole, beneficial and is usually not treated. If very exhausting, steam inhalations will often be of aid. Some expectorant mixture is usually prescribed. 8. Toxemia Usually best combated by forcing the patient to drink as much water as possible and by injecting salt solution under the skin, hypodermoclysis, or by introducing salt solution into the bowel and allowing it to become absorbed, enterocyclus. 9. Delirium This is helped by the methods mentioned in the preceding paragraph. The most efficient and most used drug for this condition is morphia, as in addition to quieting the patient, it causes restful sleep. 10. Circulatory system. This must be most carefully watched by the nurse and the slightest danger sign communicated to the physician. While each physician will, of course, order such circulatory stimulants as he sees fit, it may be wise to mention, in passing, the main drugs used for this purpose. Caffeine, camphor, adrenaline, digitalis, strophanthus, and strychnine. In severe cases, in full-blooded individuals with marked labored breathing and cyanosis, bleeding from a vein to the amount of 12 to 16 ounces is often of great help. 11. Specific Treatment It has been found by Cole and his associates at the Rockefeller Institute that the pneumococci present in the sputum of pneumonia patients can be divided into types which have been designated 1, 2, 3, 4. In any given case, sputum is taken to the laboratory and the type to which the pneumococci belong is determined. An immunizing serum corresponding to the particular type is then administered. Good results have been obtained from this method of treatment, especially in cases showing pneumococci of type 1. 12. Collapse Collapse in pneumonia may occur at any time. Its onset is sudden, and the likelihood of its occurrence increases as the time of the crisis approaches. The main symptoms are rapid prostration, chilly sensations, ashen face, cold, clammy skin, restlessness, and air hunger, rapid, shallow, gasping respiration, soft, compressible, 
often almost imperceptible pulse. The condition is a most urgent one, and prompt action is necessary. The nurse may not be able to get the doctor at once, and her patient may die while she is calling up various numbers on the phone, trying to locate the physician. She must act on her own initiative. The following plan is set forth in the belief that it will meet with no opposition from any physician. Apply heat to the extremities in the shape of hot clothes, hot bottles, and hot water bags. Give diffusible cardiac stimulants. 1. Strong ammonia on towel held near patient's nose. 2. Aromatic spirits of ammonia, 1 teaspoonful in water. 3. Camphor in oil, 3 to 6 grains, hypodermically. 4. Caffeine, 2 to 5 grains, hypodermically. 5. Strychnine, 1 thirtieth to 1 fifteenth grain, hypodermically. 6. Adrenaline chloride, 1 to 1,000 solution, 20 minims, hypodermically. 7. Ether. 15 to 20 drops, hypodermically. 8. Whiskey, 15 to 20 drops, hypodermically. The nurse should not be satisfied with giving any one of these alone. It will not be necessary to give them all, but two, three, or four should be given, as in such a crisis the heart seems to react better from the effects of a broadside than from single shots. It seems useless to add that the physician should be summoned at once, the nurse getting some person to trace him unceasingly until he is found. 13. Convalescence It is quite impossible to give any absolute roles for the management of convalescence, for each case is a law unto itself. Convalescence in uncomplicated pneumonia is relatively rapid. Care must be exercised when the patient first sits up in bed, and on no account must he be allowed suddenly to raise himself, as several cases of sudden death from the unexpected strain on the heart are on record, as the result of such an indiscretion. Progress must be slowly made, and vigilance must never be relaxed until the nurse is dismissed from the case. End of Chapter 18